the comment is about <clears throat> how he's noticing when he has fairly good continuity of mindfulness, when a thought does arise and he doesn't see it, but somewhere in the middle of it, he becomes aware of it, he's already back at the breath without even an intention to go back to the breath and without even knowing how he got there. This is the wonder of mindfulness. Really, this is the wonder of mindfulness. We make an intention to be mindful. We plant that seed in our mind consciously several times a day. And uh, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it sprouts and sometimes it doesn't. It should point to you or it should reveal to you how the practice of mindfulness is not purely an, a willful experience. It's not just through sheer determination and willpower that we become mindful, but rather we with sincerity and with some commitment, determination, we plant the seed of wishing to be mindful and cultivating that awareness. And indeed, we recognize when those conditions are present and mindfulness happens. So keep planting those seeds, you know, and you will, as you are discovering, recognize more moments of mindfulness. I wouldn't go back and reflect on what I was thinking about or how it arose and why I didn't notice it or how I got back to the breath without even intending to. I wouldn't engage in that type of reflection. I would just take refuge in the Dhamma. Mm -hmm. Kinda. And feelings that came up. 
pushing it away either. And I wonder if you know if you, um, it was very uncomfortable. I wonder if you have any uh, comments about that. I guess you would call it a view. We would call it a, would you say? A view. Um, let me approach the whole response from a place of practice rather than speculation. When you find yourself imagining, uh, reflecting, fearing, remembering your condition of your mother, for example, I would just notice each of those things in turn as they appear in the mind. Not minimizing the emotional impact of that and the fear, the and whatever else you may feel around your mother or even you being in a situation like that. Um, The whole view or the whole image is constructed of many, many, many different experiences. Thoughts, feelings, sights, sounds, memories, emotions, fear, and the whole thing gets kind of woven into a view, a a picture, an imagination of this is what's happening. And we kind of slip in and out of it. And I would begin to take it apart, take apart the solidity of that perception by noticing, you know, as I mentioned, the thoughts, the feelings, the memories, the fear, the shame. And if it really starts to be more of a reality than you're comfortable with, then really ground yourself in the present moment here. You know, really come back to the body and feel your body sitting wherever it's sitting or walking wherever it's walking and really start grounding yourself in the present, the, the body's present experience. Is that helpful? Yeah, um, I think along with that was an experience, that grounding body part, because she was also experiencing almost like sensory deprivation. Um, that was kind of at the same time. And, and, um, you, you were feeling sensory deprivation yesterday? If you're feeling sensory deprivation, I would change the focus on your mindfulness lens and really focus down and start feeling those sensations so that you don't feel so deprived of them. You know, just when you come to sit, make a determination to sit absolutely still without moving and pay very close attention to your primary object, 
you will not be deprived of sensations. Guarantee. When you walk, walk with determination to be present with every movement of the leg. When you move around the building, when you go to the dining room to eat, when you look at the bulletin board, when you go to the toilet, when you get dressed, when you go back to your room to take a nap or whatever you do, pay as much attention to every intentional movement of the body, every intentional movement of the eyes, every intentional movement of the mouth, as you do in trying to locate the rising and falling or the in and out breath, and you'll find yourself swamped with sensation. Yeah, it's just a matter of changing the lens, changing the focus, rather than just kind of gliding along the top of experience and not really sinking into it. Mindfulness is that quality of really dropping into the bottom of what is going on right now, and not just kind of gliding along on the conceptual level of what's going on right now. Walking, conceptually, is a non-sensory experience. But walking mindfully is very sensory. And the same with every other activity of our day. But Fridays are hard days for everybody. You know, it's, it's real sensory deprivation. Or it's, I should say it's real teacher deprivation. <laughs> you know, there's no talk and there's not so many interviews and it's, it can be, you're not alone in that, with that kind of experience. So, throughout your day, whatever you do, other than formally sit and formally walk, bring as much care and attention and sensitivity and moment-to-moment noting as you do in the walking and sitting. So that from the moment we begin to get up here to walk to the yogi job or the place we're going to walk or an interview, that each movement, each movement of the arms and adjusting the body and folding the, the blanket that you have or the shawl that you have and bowing if you bow and standing and turning and moving and walking out. And if you get to the bulletin board and have to look, noting the intention to look before the eyes reach the bulletin board, and then, you know, the eyes scanning. And if there's one there with your name on it, the feeling you feel before you reach for it, really. And then the intention to reach, the movement of the arm reaching and touching that pin, the intention to remove the pin pulling the pin out, do you pick up the note with another hand or do you place the pin first? Do you read the note before you place the pin back on the board or in the container? 
Where do you read the note? Standing at the bulletin board? Have you moved and turned around first? Have you noted the intention to turn and move away before you've read? When, you've read? when you read the note, what is your first response? Emotional response. There's a lot going on. That's just to get a note. Uh, we eat, we go to the toilet, we get dressed, we pick up the mail, we do lots of things every day that are leaks in our mindfulness if we're not careful. Now is the time. Some of you have another three and a half, four weeks. Some of you have another couple of months to really get into that level of paying attention to what's going on. You won't be disappointed. So enjoy your day of practice. Do you have any do you have any questions about your practice? <clears throat> The long sounds or the, the short sounds? Sure. Um, not only for short sounds or uh, very brief appearances in the mind, but for any brief appearance in the mind. And it can be a sensation, a thought, a sound. If we are, say, attending to the breath, for example, attending to the breath, and there is a quick or momentary sound, we don't really need to direct our attention away from the breath. We don't really have to do anything except notice. Oh, hearing. And oftentimes, if it's real brief, we won't notice it because we're sitting in the hall, we're paying attention to the breath. There's all kinds of sounds going on around us and we don't even notice them. So it's only when our attention is drawn to the sound that we do notice it. And all we have to do is register that. Hearing. A long sound. A plane, a car, something like that. We really see, at that time, how the attention may be initially drawn to that experience. 
we first notice hearing. And then because it is so long in time, we really see how necessary it is to sustain our attention on that sound to continue with the hearing. If we don't sustain our attention on that sound, we'll be off that sound and back on breath or other sensations while that sound is still present. So it really takes attending to that factor of mind, vichara, which is sustaining your attention. And in that, you can really hear the variety of sound in something like a sound of an airplane, a car, or the bell. It's not just a single tone, constant, steady thing, but it's a real, as Michelle says, it's a real, alive, changing, moment-to-moment thing. You can really notice also in long sounds how the mind without mindfulness just glances at the sound. It just registers the bell. And then we don't really listen to it. We just register okay. And we don't really listen to it. We don't really hear the full experience of that sound. We're off to something else. We just, you know, glance off it and, and we just kind of bounce like a pinball machine from one experience to the next. And this practice really asks us to recognize the contact that happens between the sound and the ear that registers as hearing, and then sustain your attention on it so that you can know clearly what happens to that appearance in the mind. Not only sounds, but sensations, when very um, loud sensations appear in the body. Not a momentary flicker, but a long, enduring, very distinct sensation. It doesn't... This practice asks us to recognize the contact that's happened between the sensation and the body and giving rise to some pleasant or unpleasant experience in the mind, and then sustaining your attention on that so that you can know the quality and what really happens to that experience. Not just glancing off it as, oh, ache or pain, and then on to something else, but rather really recognizing the contact with discomfort, and then really sustaining your attention on it to feel deeply into it, to notice what is the nature of this appearance in the body, this sensation, this pain, if, it's, if that's its quality. Is that 
Does that speak to what you were asking? I wouldn't do anything with them, really. If you are sitting with an open attention to hearing, then it's like you are one of those, you know, TV antennas that picks up the signal from the satellite in space. You're just sitting there with them, receptively registering what's going on. Hearing, hearing, hearing. And in that, you may notice that sometimes your mindfulness lands on the sound. Sometimes your mindfulness lands on the, a sensation in the ear. And sometimes your mindfulness lands on the fact of hearing. All three of those occur object, base, consciousness, in every moment. And mindfulness will, of its own choice, so to speak, land on one of those three, and you'll know it. So sometimes in hearing, in, in just, but the experience of landing on any of those three is um, colloquially known as hearing. Okay? But there might be uh, more of a quality of noticing the sound, quality of feeling the ear, or quality of knowing of hearing. Hearing, hearing, hearing. I wouldn't reflect on or um, try to do anything intentional with those sounds that you hear. Which is very, what did you say? Your mind creates something which is very... You're right, you're right. 
um, the sounds happen. If we're attentive, we know what it is almost immediately. But that is a multi-step process in the mind. And when mindfulness is uh, fragile, uh, that clarity of knowing is interpreted very quickly as bird, truck, buzz. I like it, I don't like it. Anger arises or you know, disappointment arises or this is pleasant arises all in a snap as the, as the mindfulness develops some strength of continuity and, and clarity, then each of those steps in the mind, hearing and then recognizing it as you know, someone's footsteps and then recognizing the aversion that arises and the story that goes on after the aversion arises, each of those steps can be known. Mindfulness is amazing. It can pick up anything, anywhere. And as it matures and gets really strong, you'll, you'll see. Then uh, the uh, bare experience of sound won't always be interpreted. Just as the bare experience of sensations won't always be interpreted and reacted to. Just known for what it is, clearly, without comment. Which is really what we're asking you to report in your interviews. That is really what we're seeking. As clear a description as you can tell us of how you experience simple things, the breath or your primary object in sitting, the movement of the legs or whatever you experience in walking, and other predominant appearances in the mind, whether it's pain in the body, the nature of your particular wandering mind that day, and just the clarity, really we're asking, tell us how clearly you experience your mind and your body. And if you can come and really report. And you might say, I sit down and I don't even remember that I'm here to watch the breath for about 35 minutes. I'm caught in a dream. Then I remember and I say, oh yes, breathing in and then the bell rings. (laughs) That is far preferable than coming in and saying, you know, last week I had a good sitting. And boy, it was so good. It was after that meal. All that's not, not really important. You know, explaining how something happened, why something happened, or why you did something that you did, or some memory from way back, or, or even, you know, the experience that you reported to the last teacher you had the interview with. Not important. It's really important to, to come with what's going on today, or what went on between, since the last interview, say something distinctive, some, some distinctive clarity or some distinctive unclarity, then that'd be really helpful. Then you can get some um, very precise guidance in how to work with that particular state of clarity or unclarity. Or you can get some um, 
further understanding of how to understand that particular experience in a way that doesn't um, reflect a solid sense of I. And that's really what's important in the, in the interviews, to be really precise about what you directly experience in your sitting and in your walking. Now that's the primary object and the secondary objects, other distinctive experience. And if you can tell us uh, that in about seven minutes, three minutes of instruction will be more than enough to get you through the next 48 hours. And then everybody can be on time. Nobody has to wait extra 10 minutes, 15 minutes, sometimes more than a half hour. How does that happen? I don't know, but it does. So please be considerate as to how long your, your report takes and how much you, um, you know, what you, what you really say, what, what is really important. It's helpful to, to do some massive editing of your mind before you come in, you know, and just really just edit it all out except the essentials. And then if there's time and you have a question, ask it. So it's time for interviews for some of you and further practice for all of us. So enjoy your day. Questions about practice? <coughs> Some encouraging words about pain. <clears throat> Everybody's got it. Um, <laughs> Next question. <laughs> no. <clears throat> A couple of things about pain that is helpful to remember. One is that pain is not necessarily from sitting in the wrong posture. And so even if you shift your posture, you might get some temporary relief, but that's not really dealing with the mind that is holding on that needs to be dealt with in order to really see through the nature of pain. So pain can be, or physical discomfort can be a 
very steady object for one's attention to focus the mind on. And as one just stays with it, as unpleasant as it is, then the mind does get more collected. As one is mindful, moment to moment, just being with the bare experience of the discomfort, the mind gets collected or concentrated. That's the relationship between mindfulness and concentration. As we connect our attention to, sustain our attention on the experience, then we begin to see it more clearly, mindfulness. The continuity of those moments of mindfulness collects the mind, focuses the mind, or concentrates the mind. And when the mind is concentrated, it sees more deeply into, or it sees the underlying nature of, or the uh, complex structure of, this thing called pain. Pain, in any pain that we have is a very, it's a dynamic matrix of sensations in flux all the time. But we don't see it that way usually. It's just a solid clump indicating that the mind is not as collected as it could be. But as we're just with the discomfort, the mind gets collected and we can see more deeply into it. It may lose its quality of discomfort or may lose its quality of pain. To the extent that we have the energy to do that, I would encourage you to do that. But we don't always have the energy. Sometimes we just, we just don't have that mental energy. And then being with discomfort is just a struggle. And it isn't useful to struggle kind of with a kind of like an endurance contest. Am I going to win or is the bell going to come first? You know, it's, what's going to happen? That's not being with the discomfort in any skillful or wise way. It, it, you can't open to wisdom that way. You really just solidify a sense of, I can do it or I didn't do it. And the sense of self just gets really fixated around pain or discomfort. So if one has the mental energy, fine, be with it to the extent that or until such time as the mind just gets fractured, fragmented, skittish, uh, just can't approach the discomfort. When the mind can't approach the discomfort because it just it doesn't have the energy, doesn't have the steadiness of mind, then shift the posture, of course. Get some relief because the the opening of the mind to pain or anything else comes from the balance of energy and tranquility. If there's a lot of energy just enduring and enduring and there's no tranquility, there's no opening. So you really have to monitor your energy each time that you're dealing with discomfort. On the other hand, it is at some point essential that you confront pain. 
So when you do have that energy, when you really do feel there's a steadiness, even though it's unpleasant, really work with it. Really play with your edge of, in this case, endurance. How much can you open to? Not struggle with, but open to. Some of you have heard this story before. But it's very illustrative of skillful and unskillful ways of working with pain. When I first went to Burma, I was real gung-ho. And, of course, you sit for hours and hours a day and you get pain. And my belief at the time was, you sit with pain and that's it. You just sit with it. You just grit your teeth and, and that's what it says in the suttas, you know, grit your teeth and bite your lip and endure. Okay, that was my belief. And so that, and I also had the belief that the longer you could sit, the better the practice. So I wasn't satisfied with just sitting an hour, which is the schedule, I was just notching it up. 15 minutes at a time, you know, an hour, an hour and a half, an hour and three quarters, two hours, two and a quarter. And of course it was really painful. It was just excruciating. I'd be going into Saito Pandita and, and giving him these exquisite details of the intricacies of pain. Just every little flicker in each cell, it just, you know. And he'd get up to three hours and three and a half hours and it's just excruciating pain. Just, it's just ridiculous. And after weeks, after a couple of weeks of this, just minute details of the pain, Saito Pandita said to me one day, he says, after I gave this another report, he says, do you know why you have so much pain? And I said, no. He says, you sit too long. <laughs> I, you know... So be careful how you relate to your discomfort. You know, use it skillfully and, you know, don't, don't use it as a measure of how good you are, how bad you are, how your practice is going or why not. In the moment it can reflect how much energy you have and how skillfully you can open and how carefully you can know the nature of discomfort, pain. Pardon? The question is, how do you know when you're damaging your body? I wish, I mean, there's a lot of us wish that we knew how that happened. You know, because a lot of people do have, or at some point have damaged their body, their backs or their knees or something. But one, 
flag to be attentive to is if you're sitting with pain and being with it, and when you get up and walk, if the discomfort passes within five minutes or so of walking and it works itself out, then there's less likelihood of damage. If the discomfort remains throughout the walking and you really start to feel a soreness and an inflammation, then I'd say that's something to really be attentive to and sit in a posture that doesn't irritate that particular part of the body. If you have an injury, you know, whatever, skiing or football or (laughs) cooking injury or whatever it is, then, you know, be careful not to irritate that particular thing, knowing that it has been damaged in the past. Be careful. So, it's another nice day. Oh, yes, briefly. Uh, the question is about restlessness and how to deal with it. The one way of understanding restlessness is that it's it's too much energy for uh, the container, whether it's the body or that particular area of sensation or the mind or whatever, and so giving yourself a bigger space in which to be restless whether it's physical space or psychic space, can help to minimize the discomfort of the restlessness. So that sometimes when you're sitting with your eyes closed, restless, just to open your eyes and really take in the space in which all this restlessness is happening, really takes the lid off of what feels like an explosive situation or if the restlessness is really the tightness of your practice and the schedule and just the continuity, then give yourself some space by relaxing your um, adherence to the to the particular schedule. If that's kind of the the where the edges are in your restlessness, and. You might try just sitting or standing very still. Whichever posture is is kind of easy for you, even with your eyes open, just standing very still. The direct antidote to restlessness is happy comfort of mind and body. So to the extent that you can make your body comfortable in in a posture and then remain still there, then that will help to balance the energy of the restlessness. So have a pain-free, restful day. Are there any questions about practice today?
speak about knowing the difference between motivation and desire? The question, or the request was for some comment about motivation and desire. What motivates you to practice? I asked her, what motivates her to practice? And she said, often it's desire. Is your desire fulfilled? Oh, I see. Desire to be free. Okay, now I'm getting the picture. Um, poor old English language just doesn't have the words <laughs> to talk about the desire for freedom in a wholesome sense. Because, you're right, probably a lot of us have the desire to be free. Um, however, that is not desire in the unwholesome sense. However, if there is a craving for a particular experience that one believes is freedom, then that, of course, is carrot on the stick. Craving, grasping, unwholesome. But even that, not so bad. Because if we practice, even if we initially might come for the wrong reasons to practice, once we get a taste of freedom in a moment of mindfulness, in that, we don't have to wait. I mean, we, hey, freedom is not out there, you know, at the end of the retreat or at the end of 10 years of practice or at the end of 10 lifetimes of practice. That's not where freedom is. Freedom is in each moment that we are able to be with what is appearing and not turn away from it out of aversion or grasp onto it out of attachment or, or clinging, craving. And in that very moment, there is the freedom to be with that experience, without push, without pull. And by definition of being with it in that way, we will see its three characteristics, one of them being impermanence. When that experience is gone, we are present for the next moment. We are free to be present for the next moment. We are free to experience the next moment. We don't have to wait. I mean, freedom is not way out there. Freedom is in each moment that we can be with what's appearing without aversion or clinging. The more of those moments one recognizes the greater the sense of spaciousness and what we call normally freedom in one's life. So if the motivation is to be present with 
things as they are in this moment? Good motivation. Probably not clinging or grasping or desire. But if your motivation is to get something out there, a particular experience that someone has identified as freedom, there may be some clinging, some craving, some uh, unwholesome desire. There may also be some sincere, uh, wholesome wish to be free. And that uh, motivation in practice or desire for freedom is, as every other experience is, impermanent. And so in each moment, we look, or we can look to see, what's the motivation for this moment right now? What's the desire in this moment? It's not like we had one desire or one motivation to come on this retreat. That is gone. That, that particular motivation or that particular desire is long gone. There have been innumerable other moments of motivation and desire or desire since then, even in the last sitting, even right now. So um, bring it really into the present moment, which is where practice is. It's right here, right now, this moment. And the question is, am I being motivated or am I desiring a particular experience right now? One of the I don't know where it came from, whether it was the Buddha or Joseph, but uh, <laughs> and I don't mean to equate the two, but <laughs> it is really important one of the most significant events in one's life is hearing about the possibility of liberation. Which, when one first hears the Dhamma, we just first hear the possibility, our mind may be completely unfree. And the first thing it's going to do is going to grasp it. It's going to crave that experience. And hopefully it'll get you to practice. And in practice you'll learn to let go of it. But it's a moment-to-moment thing. Yeah, Kim? Yeah. Steve, right along those lines, uh, uh, are there degrees of freedom? Uh, let me frame this this way. Uh, freedom in the sense you talked about, moment-to-moment freedom, is... Uh, dependent upon a function of the, the mental factors that you bring to bear, mindfulness, non-grasping, and so on. But also, it's a function of our understanding. And my understanding, let me just put it this way, my understanding is probably not the same as Joseph's. <laughs> so in a moment, I know he, he feels aversion, so when his mind lets go from a place of deeper understanding, and mine lets go, is it the same? Or are there we're not, you see what I'm saying? I may not see all that he's saying in a bigger, see that he's seeing in a bigger context. 
before I'm suggesting maybe levels of freedom. The question or the comment is about levels of freedom. If someone with great wisdom lets go of aversion in a moment and experiences a moment of freedom, and someone with real beginner's mind, not much experience, but in a moment lets go of aversion and experiences a moment of freedom, are those two moments of freedom the same or different? I don't know. <laughs> a deeper quality of freedom or just more of it? <laughs> more, more, give me more. <laughs> yes. I, there, uh, I think experientially there are moments when we feel more free than other moments. Um, I haven't really looked at that to know just what qualities are different in those two moments, and it might be one of understanding. I'm not sure there is a greater or lesser freedom in that moment of mindful presence. Okay. In the orthodox Theravada tradition, as one learns to let go more, in time, certain unfree states of mind are uprooted, never to appear again in the mind. Now we could say, oh, if someone has practiced and some of these unfree mental states have been uprooted, they probably experience I mean, because they don't experience those whole, that range of defilements or uh, afflictive emotions or however you want to understand it, then they may experience, um, I guess I would introduce a new term, a purity of mind that is uh, extraordinary. Yes. So, uh, it kind of goes back to what you were saying before about motivation versus desire. So, if one is in a situation where an aversive uh, stimulus, you know, some kind of a noise going on that is creating an aversion, and there's a choice of practicing in a quiet place or practicing with the aversion, <laughs> how do you? Uh, The question is, if you have a choice of practicing in Grand Central Station or the forest, which is it wrong practice to choose the forest? Of course not. The, you know, if you can place yourself in conditions that are more conducive to tranquility, awareness, openness, by all means, do that. 
Uh, the Buddha was very unequivocal. He says there, you know, many times in the suttas, he says, there are all those trees, you know, go sit. He didn't say, there are all those marketplaces, go sit. You know, so if you have the possibility, by all means, you know, give yourself a break, do yourself a favor and um, put yourself in the conditions that are conducive to practice. On the other hand, if you're in a situation and it's noisy and it's, you know, the pipes are banging and somebody's coughing and somebody's <laughs> all that stuff. And that's where you are. That's, that's the situation. To sit dreamily wishing that you were out in the forest is not particularly good practice. That's just, you know, being lost in aversion and craving and Not good practice, but, you know, when the bell rings, uh, you could walk out into the forest if it's, if you think that would be better support for your practice. Yeah. One last question, yes. You know who those yogis were when he gave those talks? <laughs> huh? Yeah. Joseph and Sharon and me and Michelle and Stephen Smith and, and I think Corrado and Larry and a few <laughs> other people. The three refuges. <laughs> yes. how you were feeling. <laughs> there is a quality the, of tone that comes out in his talks that uh, sometimes is less, feels less supportive than 
shaming and humiliating and putting down and um, you know and one has to be very careful when one listens to those talks and um, it's helpful to understand where he's coming from but it's also helpful to understand the particular techniques that he's using to um, what he thinks is inspire and encourage and maybe it works for Burmese people, but for many of us, uh, it feels like shaming and and it's uh, discouraging rather than encouraging. That certainly is not his intent. Um, so one has to protect themselves when one listens to those talks and be really um, observant of those particular mental states that you mentioned, discouragement, uh, etc. And not let them get the upper hand when you listen, but be really um, on guard for those types of feelings that come when one uses those particular teaching technique or when those particular teaching technique are used with you. So. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.